I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. As you'll be aware, you know, there's quite a lot going on in the Middle East at the moment. And earlier this week, events took on... Uh, new magnitude, in a sense, for New Zealand when Prime Minister Christopher Luxon announced this country would send a six-member Defence Force team to help protect shipping in the Red Sea. And this decision was controversial. The Green Party said it was deeply disturbed by it. Uh, Labour said the decision had shades of Iraq. But here's a question. Why are ships coming under fire in the Red Sea? And why is this stretch of water so crucial for not just this part of the world, but for the world as a whole. Well, Dr. Richard Dunley is a naval and maritime strategy expert, a senior lecturer in history at the University of uh, New South Wales in Canberra. I spoke to him earlier this evening, and I began by asking him to explain what exactly is actually going on in the Red Sea at the moment. That's a, a very good question. Um, there's lots going on in the Red Sea at the moment, I think is the, the simple way to put that. Um, it all kind of started um with the uh the um events in gaza um but the connections between that and what's happening in the red sea are a little bit uh complicated but the red sea is effectively a really really important um strategic artery for shipping um linking through the suez canal uh, effectively linking europe and the mediterranean um to uh, what we now describe as the Indo-Pacific. Um, so it's really important. Um, there is a group of uh, rebels based in Yemen called the Houthis who are currently um, attacking quite a lot of shipping going through there um, using a variety of different means. Um, and this has caused huge reverberations through the shipping industry and through that into uh, the economy. Um, and as such, you're beginning to see now uh, governments standing up and taking quite a lot of notice. Um, and I think that's uh, now becoming clear, um, both in Australia, in New Zealand, um, and particularly in places like Britain and the United States. You mentioned that there are connections with Gaza, uh, what's going on in Gaza, and um, that they are complicated. C- can you do your best to boil those down um, to, 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 to as fundamental as you can? What are those connections to Gaza? So the initial statements that came out from the Houthis when they initially started uh, doing some attacks on shipping, um, it was very much directly connected to the Israeli offensive in Gaza. And they were saying that they were basically trying to cut shipping going to Israel. Um, And in the initial attacks, it was a matter of some debate, but you could, I think, make an argument that they were trying to target vessels that were had some kind of Israeli connection. Um, since then, it's become, I think, relatively clear that that actually they're targeting basic, basically anything that goes. Um, so 
that kind of direct connection with with the uh, conflict in Gaza has very much faded, um, although it caused um, concerns, I think, for, for a number of people looking at um, Western intervention uh, because of the um, highly politicized nature of the, the, the Gaza issue. Um, but you are also seeing the, the wider geopolitics of the region playing out. So the Houthi rebels are very much supported by um, Iran, and they're seen, um, I think, uh, fairly as kind of a, a an Ara- Iranian proxy mm-hmm. uh, in the region. And so um, because Iran obviously is very much set against Israel and other Iranian proxies, including potentially Hamas, but mm-hmm. certainly Hezbollah, um, are very much uh, involved in that that sort of uh, confrontation with Israel, this is now being seen as part of uh, that kind of wider set of tensions um, and has then spilt out even into um, uh, tensions between Iran and Pakistan and there were various tit-for-tat strikes there. So it's it's very complicated. There's an awful lot going on. Um, but that's, I guess, in a, a nutshell, an effort to try and uh, simplify it. That was, a, that was a good explanation. L- let's talk now about the Red Sea. You mentioned before that this is a, a really important strategic co- corridor. Why is that? Um, because if you look at um, uh, a map and you try and go the shortest way by sea from Europe or even from uh sort of to a degree coming things coming from the east coast of the United States um, into the Indian Ocean and from that into the Pacific. Um, it is far quicker to go through the Suez Canal and down the Red Sea into the Indian Ocean um, or the other way, if you're going towards Europe, than it is to go the long way around, around the southern, uh, the uh, sort of South Africa in and up along the, the Atlantic. Um, so it is that the main shipping corridor connecting Europe and the Atlantic world with uh, the Indo-Pacific. And it's not only, I mean, obviously there's a huge amount of uh, commodity trade, but you're also looking at things like um, European hydrocarbons. So oil and gas and things flow through there coming out of of, of the Middle East as well. So really, really important uh, junction point for the the global economy. There has historically been quite a lot of conflict in this general geographical area, but the Suez Canal and the Red Sea, has it traditionally been seen as kind of um, like neutral territory because because it's so important for the world, the world economy and the world at large? So if you go back far enough, then there certainly is um, issues or uh, case studies where there are examples where there's real tension over this. Uh, I guess the, the most obvious example was Colonel Nasser, the, the ruler in Egypt, um, and the 1956 Suez Crisis, um, and that that element of, of sort of the, the extreme politicization of the Suez Canal. Um, but more recently, it has tended to be an area where um, there's a lot less in way of, of tensions than, for example, um, things like uh, the, the Gulf um, and you saw the the tanker wars that took place there in, in the 1980s. Um, so elsewhere has seen a lot more tensions, and there has been a degree to which the, the Red Sea um, has been... Um, it's been relatively peaceful, as I say, compared to, to 
certain other strategic choke points um and as you say within a region that has had um uh, huge uh, sort of geopolitical problems for for a very long time you, you talk about the idea of choke points there and i'm i'm thinking about you know borders and how you police and, and secure you know how you manifest security in, in sort of areas and i suppose on land it's it's relatively easier right like you can you can um um you know spread your border border control across a border is it more difficult to do that on the water i'm i'm just i'm eating my words here i suppose i'm saying like how, how do you how do you police an area like the red sea like how are these strikes being carried out why aren't they just getting shut down by security forces or or military personnel so this is where maritime connections um are in many ways so sort of it's become so complicated um because if you look at somewhere like australia or new zealand um we have a very sort of high degree of territorial security basically if anyone wants to to come as you say on on land they've got to get on a boat or a plane and actually come here um and that's in many ways extremely unlikely so we have this very high level of security um or perception thereof the trouble is that we are actually really dependent on these uh, supply lines, on these economic kind of lifelines that run across the water, uh, and they go all the way across the globe. Um, so we are very dependent on places like uh, the Suez Canal and, and the, the Middle East and other choke points um, uh, nearer to home, uh, the Straits of Malacca, etc. Mm. Um, so lots and lots of things that are vital to our interests flow through these places or waters around these places. Um, but the problem is that lots of the land around there is not very secure. Mm -hmm. um, so if we look back a little bit, we had a, a whole spate of piracy attacks off the coast of Somalia, um, which I guess is is probably in some ways the, the closest parallel to what you've seen here, but very different technologically. Um, but you're there you saw a failed state, um, what most people I think would call a failed state in Somalia, and you saw the um, the breakdown of security and governance on land spilling out onto onto the sea. Mm. Um, and because the sea is a space where we all want to use it, um, that breakdown of security becomes something which uh, needs to be policed. Um, we generally sort of view that on land, if it's happening in someone else's country, it's not our problem. Mm unless it kind of really directly affects us. Um, this is an area where you, you begin to see that sort of spillover happen far more frequently. And so is that the bind that countries find themselves in here? You know, the, the idea that it, it's in their economic, it's massively in their economic interests to send naval support to that region. But be, because of what you explained before in terms of the intertwined links with the war in Gaza and other geopolitics, you know, sending naval support for the US could be framed or perceived as supporting the US and Israel, when actually the motivation might well just be to help preserve trading norms. Yes, so I think that in, in a purely defensive kind of way, I think you can frame it quite easily that if you're sending forces that are helping, I don't know, ships, for example, escort so warships escorting the merchant ships that are flowing through there. And when the Houthi rebels fire a missile at a, a ship, you then shoot that missile down. Mm. Um, in that kind of frame, I think you can see it relatively 
um, easily as a, a, a defensive approach and something where you are protecting your economic interests. Mm-hmm. Where it becomes much more difficult um, is where you start seeing, so Britain and the United States have been actually offensively striking positions in Yemen. So right. they've been going and trying to destroy the uh, Houthi missile sites and their radar sites and things like this in an effort to to basically degrade their capability. Um, this is a, a a more difficult kind of thing. You can see why the Brits and the Americans want to be doing this, but it does then play into the wider geopolitics a lot more. Um, and it also raises the the problem of if it doesn't work, what do you do then? Mm. Do, how do how far do you go to provide the security? I mean, I, I think it's extremely unlikely we're ever going to see troops on the ground in in Yemen. Um, but that ultimately is kind of the only way you could absolutely provide this kind of security. Um, so where where do you stop? Um, it, it's a sort of something of a slippery slope, uh, which uh, is is something that policymakers don't like. Um, but at the moment, there aren't many other good options. And I guess the, the, the other thing that plays into that is there aren't that many countries in the world that can, you know, that have navies that can provide naval escorts for large numbers of, of ships, right? Nope, certainly not against the kind of technologies that um, the Iranians have provided the Houthis with. Um, and how long do you keep doing this yeah, for? Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you could be doing this for 10, 15, 20 years. Um, that's not a, a, a feasible thing going forward. So how do you find some kind of solution to this? Um, the uh, US in particular is, is keen for a, uh, a military solution, um, but I think there are significant questions over whether or not that is um, feasible. New Zealand uh, announced yesterday it was going to deploy some troops to the region. What has Australia chosen to do out of interest? Um, So I think Australia has ended up doing something very similar to what New Zealand has done. Um, They have deployed an additional 11 personnel to the region. Uh, It has been, frankly, there, there remains a little bit of kind of confusion over quite who's gone, what exactly they're doing, where quite they, they they are in that um and it, it's remained something became a little bit of a political tennis ball um not least because for a while there was a discussion about whether or not australia should send a warship um they decided in the end not to and send a a, a much smaller commitment of, of personnel um so it's a it's been quite a um contentious uh subject certainly within uh the, the sort of circles of, of people who are, are following this this closely and within the, the, the newspaper debates. Um, but Australia has ended up in a similar kind of position to, to New Zealand. Yeah, that, that all sounds pretty familiar to me. Richard, just in summary, you know, th- this sort of um, activity in, you know, as we talked about it, a sort of a shared area that is crucial for the world e- economy at large, it m- might once have been seen as... Uh, t- taboo, you know, something that is not done even in the most extreme circumstances in modern history, you know, in the past, what, 30, 40 years. But what are the implications here? You know, there are plenty of crucial shipping channels in really hotly contested regions that could potentially combust. I, I mean, the South China Sea in particular springs to mind. Is this a, a worry moving forward? Um, Yes, in the regard that 
um, I think it should always be a worry. Um, I, I would suggest that actually this is perhaps more common than um, your, your, you would perhaps be, be implying there. Okay. Um, the, I think the, the concern or, or perhaps the, um, the, the area I'd be most concerned about is the degree to which this is perhaps being orchestrated at least uh, and using proxy kind of forces. Mm-hmm. So whereas, for example, the, the issues off the coast of Somalia um, were very much something that um, uh, pretty much everybody could get on board with and say piracy is bad. Yeah. Um, and so you even had the um, the Chinese, for example, uh, deploying forces to the region um, and working to a degree, at least, uh, closely with the Americans and the Australians and, and others involved in this. So it was a truly kind of international collaboration. Mm. Um, I think whether it's a case of the deterioration of wider geopolitics or what else, um, I think there's potentially an example here of, of this being now exploited as part of a, a wider sort of great powery type competition or at least regional power competition. And whether or not you could then see something similar to that taking place elsewhere, um, that would certainly be a, a very significant concern. Um, but it is even within this, it's noteworthy that whilst the Americans have very much led um, uh, on the, the sort of the efforts to protect shipping, um, the the other great power with with huge interests in this region is is China, um, and they have been notably absent. Um, so, what does that say about the um, the kind of the wider geopolitics? I think it's it says some interesting things. Richard Dunley, thanks so much for that. That was that was great. Really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me on.